Welcome to another episode of True Crimes on the ELA Hallway. Today, we're going to join Saroff and Rainsford in a deadly Hunger Games-style hunt. Welcome to The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, Part 1. Off there to the right, somewhere, is a large island, said Whitney. It's rather a mystery. What island is it? Rainsford asked. The old charts call it Ship Trap Island, Whitney replied. A suggestive name, isn't it? Sailors have a curious dread of the place. I don't know why. Some superstition. Can't see it, remarked Rainsford, trying to peer through the dank tropical night that was palpable as it pressed its thick, warm blackness in upon the yacht. You've good eyes, said Whitney with a laugh. And I've seen you pick off a moose moving in the brown fall bush at a 400 yards. But even you can't see four miles or so through a moonless Caribbean night. <laughs> Nor four yards, admitted Rainsford. Ugh, it's like moist black velvet. It will be light enough in Rio, promised Whitney. We should make it in a few days. I hope the Jaguar guns have come in from Purdy's. We should have some good hunting up the Amazon. Great sport hunting. The best sport in the world, agreed Rainsford. For the hunter, amended Whitney. Not for the jaguar. Don't talk rot, Whitney, said Rainsford. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how a jaguar feels? Perhaps the jaguar does, observed Whitney. Bah, they've no understanding. Even so, I rather think they understand one thing. Fear. The fear of pain and the fear of death. Ah, nonsense. <laughs> Laughed Rainsford. This hot weather is making you soft, Whitney. Be a realist. The world is made up of two classes. The hunters and the huntees. Luckily, you and I are hunters. Do you think we've passed this island yet? I can't tell in the dark. I hope so. Why? Asked Rainsford. The place has a reputation. A bad one. Cannibals? Suggested Rainsford. Hardly. Even cannibals wouldn't live in such a godforsaken place. But it's gotten into sailor lore somehow. Didn't you notice that the crew's nerves seemed a bit jumpy today? They were a bit strange now that you mention it. Even Captain Nielsen. Yes, even that tough-minded old Swede who'd go up to the devil himself and ask, for, ask him for a light. Those fishy blue eyes held a look I never saw there before. All I could get out of him was, This place has an evil name among seafaring men, sir. Then he said to me, very gravely, Do, Don't you feel anything? As if the air about us was actually poisonous. Now, you mustn't laugh when I tell you this. I did feel something like a sudden chill. <laughs> There was no breeze. The air was as flat as a plate glass window. We were drawing near the island then. What I felt was a mental chill, a sort of sudden dread. Pure imagination, said Rainsford. One superstitious sailor can taint the whole ship's company with his fear. Maybe, but sometimes I think sailors have an extra sense that tells them when they are in danger. Sometimes I think evil is a tan tangible thing with wavelengths, just as sound and light have. 
An evil place can, so to speak, broadcast vibrations of evil. Evil. Anyhow, I'm glad we're getting out of this zone. Well, I think I'll turn in now, Rainsford. I'm not sleepy, said Rainsford. I'm going to smoke another pipe up on the after deck. Good night, then, Rainsford. See you at breakfast. Right. Good night, Whitney. There was no sound in the night as Rainsford sat there, but the muffled throb of the engine that drove the yacht swiftly through the darkness and the swish and ripple of the wash of the propeller. Rainsford, reclining in a steamer chair, indolently puffed on the favorite briar. The sensuous drowsiness of the night was on him. It's so dark, he thought, that I could sleep without closing my eyes. The night would be my eyelids. An abrupt sound startled him. Off to the right, he heard it in his ears, expert in such matters, could not be mistaken. Again, he heard the sound. And again, somewhere off in the blackness, someone had fired a gun three times. Rainsford sprang up and moved quickly to the rail, mystified. He strained his eyes in the direction from which the reports had come, but it was like trying to see through a blanket. He leaped upon the rail and balanced himself there to get greater elevation. His pipe, striking a rope, was knocked from his mouth. He lunged for it. A short, hoarse cry came from his lips as he realized he had reached too far and had lost his balance. The cry was pitched off short as the blood-warm waters of the Caribbean Sea dosed over his head. He struggled up to the surface and tried to cry out, but... The wash from the speeding yacht slapped him in the face and the salt water in his open mouth made him gag and strangle. Desperately, he struck out with strong strokes after the receding lights of the yacht, but he stopped before he had swum 50 feet. A certain cool-headedness had come to him. It was not the first time he had been in a tight place. There was a chance that his cries could be heard by someone aboard the yacht but that chance was slender and grew more slender as the yacht raced on. He wrestled himself out of his clothes and shouted with all his power. The lights of the yacht became faint and ever-vanishing fireflies. Then they were blotted out entirely by the night. Rainsford remembered the shouts. Shots. They had come from the right, and doggedly he swam in that direction, swimming with slow, deliberate strokes, conserving his strength. For a seemingly endless time, he fought the sea. He began to count his strokes. He could do so possibly a hundred more and then. Rainsford heard a sound. It came out of the darkness, a high screaming sound, the sound of an animal in an extremity of anguish and terror. He did not recognize the animal that made the sound. He did not try to. With fresh vitality, he swam toward the sound. He heard it again. Then it was cut short by another noise, crisp, staccato. Pistol shot, muttered Rainsford, swimming on. Ten minutes of determined effort brought another sound to his ears, the most welcome he had ever heard, the muttering and growling of the sea breaking on a rocky shore. He was almost to the rocks before he saw them. On a night less calm, he would have been shattered against them. With his remaining strength, he dragged himself from the swirling waters. Jagged crags appeared to jut up into the opaqueness. He forced himself upward, hand over hand, gasping. 
his hands raw, he reached a flat place at the top. Dense jungle came down to the very edge of the cliffs. What perils that tangle of trees and underbrush might hold for him did not concern Rainsford just then. All he knew was that he was safe from his enemy, the sea, and that utter weariness was on him. He flung himself down at the jungle's edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of his life. Welcome back to True Crimes of the ELA Hallway. When we left off last time, Rainsford had just made it to the island after tumbling into the sea from the yacht because he had heard a gunshot. Now he's on the island from whence the gunshot came. And now, The Most Dangerous Game, Part 2. When he opened his eyes, he knew from the position of the sun that it was late in the afternoon. Sleep had given him new vigor. A sharp hunger was picking at him. He looked about him almost cheerfully. Where there are pistol shots, there are men. Where there are men, there is food, he thought. But what kind of man, he wondered, in so forbidding a place, an unbroken front of snarled and jaggled jungle, fringed the shore. He saw no sign of a trail through the closely knit web of weeds and trees. It was easier to go along the shore, and Rainsford floundered along by the water. Not far from where he landed, he stopped. Some wounded thing, by the evidence, a large animal, had thrashed about in the underbrush. The jungle weeds were crushed down, and the moss was lacerated. One patch of weeds was stained crimson. A small, glittering object not far away caught Rainsford's eye, and he picked it up. It was an empty cartridge. A twenty-two, he remarked. That's odd. It must have been a fairly large animal, too. The hunter had his nerve with him to tackle it with a light gun. It's clear that the brute put up a fight. I suppose the first three shots I heard was when the hunter flushed his quarry and wounded it. The last shot was when he trailed it here and finished it. He examined the ground closely and found what he had hoped to find, the print of hunting boots. They pointed along the cliff in the direction he had been going. Eagerly, he hurried along, now slipping on a rotten log or a loose stone, but making headway. Night was beginning to settle down on the island. Bleak darkness was blacking out the sea and jungle when Rainsford sighted the lights. He came upon them, and as he turned a crook in the coastline, and his first thought was that was that they had come upon a village, for there were many lights. But as he forged along, he saw, to his great astonishment, that all the lights were in one enormous building a lofty structure with pointed towers plunging upward into the gloom. His eyes made out the shadowy outlines of a palatial chateau. It was set on a high bluff and on three sides of its cliff dived down to where the sea licked greedy lips at the shadows. Mirage, thought Rainsford. But it was no mirage he found. When he opened the tall spiked iron gate, the stone steps were real enough. Massive door with a leering gargoyle for a knocker was real enough. Yet, 
above it all hung in air of unreality. He lifted the knocker and it creaked up stiffly as if had never been used before. He let it fall and it startled him with its booming loudness. He thought he heard steps within. The door remained closed. Again, Rainsford lifted the heavy knocker and let it fall. The door opened then, opened as suddenly as if it were on a spring, and Rainsford stood blinking in the river of glaring gold light that poured out. The first thing Rainsford's eyes discerned was the largest man Rainsford had ever seen, a gigantic creature, solidly made of black beard to the waist. It was in his hand, the man held a long-barreled revolver, and he was pointing it straight at Rainsford's heart. Out of the snarl of beard, two small eyes regarded Rainsford. Don't be alarmed, said Rainsford, with a smile which he hoped was disarming. I'm no robber. I fell off a yacht. My name is Sanger Rainsford of New York City. The menacing look in the eyes did not change, the revolver pointing as rigidly as if the giant were a statue. He gave no sign that he understood Rainsford's words or that he had even heard him. He was dressed in a uniform, a black uniform, trimmed with gray astrakhan. I'm Sanger Rainsford of New York. Rainsford began again. I fell off a yacht. I am hungry. The man's only answer was to raise with his thumb the hammer of his revolver. Then Rainsford saw the man's free hand go to his forehead in a military salute, and he saw him click his heels together and stand at attention. Another man was coming down the broad marble steps, an erect, slender man in evening clothes. He advanced to Rainsford and held out his hand. In a cultivated voice, marked by a slight accent, that gave it added precision and deliberateness, he said, It is a very great pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Sanger Rainsford, the celebrated hunter, to my home. Automatically, Rainsford shook the man's hand. I've read your book about hunting snow leopards in Tibet, you see, explained the man. I am General Zaroff. Rainsford's first impression was that the man was singularly handsome. His second was that there was an original, almost bizarre quality about the general's face. He was a tall man, past middle age, for his hair was a vivid white. But his thick eyebrows and pointed military mustache were as black as the night from which Rainsford had come. His eyes, too, were black and very bright. He had high cheekbones, a sharp-cut nose, a spare, dark face, the face of a man who used to giving orders, the face of an aristocrat. Turning to the giant in uniform, the general made a sign. The giant put away his pistol, saluted, withdrew. Ivan is an incredibly strong fellow, remarked the general, but he has the misfortune of being deaf and dumb. A simple fellow, but I'm afraid, like all his race, a bit of a savage. Is he Russian? He is a Cossack, said the general, and his smile showed red lips and pointed teeth. So am I. Come, he said. We shouldn't be chatting here. We can talk later. Now you want clothes, food, rest. You shall have them. This is a most restful spot. Ivan had reappeared and the general spoke to him with lips that moved but gave forth no sound. Follow Ivan, if you please, Mr. Rainsford, said the general. I was about to have my dinner when you came. 
I'll wait for you. You'll find my clothes will fit you, I think. It was to a huge beam-ceilinged bedroom with a canopied big bed enough for six men that Rainsford followed the silent giant. Ivan laid out an evening suit and Rainsford, as he put it on, noticed that it came from a London tailor who ordinarily cut and sewed for none below the rank of Duke. The dining room, to which Ivan conducted him, was in many ways remarkable. There was a believable magnificence a medieval magnificence about it. It suggested a baronial hall of feudal times with its oaken panels, its high ceiling, its vast refectory tables where two score men could sit down to eat. About the hall were mounted heads of many animals, lions, tigers, elephants, moose, bears, larger or more perfect specimens Rainsford had never seen. At the great table, the general was sitting alone. You'll have a cocktail, Mr. Rainsford, he suggested. The cocktail was surprisingly good, and Rainsford noted the table appointments were of the finest. The linen, the crystal, the silver, the china. They were eating borscht, the rich red soup with whipped cream so dear to Russian palates. Half apologetically, General Zaroff said, We do our best to preserve the amenities of civilization here. Please forgive any lapses. We are well off the beaten track, you know. Do you think the champagne has suffered from its long ocean trip? Not in the least, declared Rainsford. He was finding the general a most thoughtful and affable host, a true cosmopolitan. But there was one small trait of the general's that made Rainsford uncomfortable. Where he looked up from his plate, he found the general studying him, appraising him narrowly. Perhaps, said General Zaroff. You were surprised that I recognized your name. You see... I read all books on hunting published in English, French, and Russian. I have but one passion in my life, Mr. Rainsford, and that is the hunt. You have some wonderful heads here, said Rainsford, as he ate a particularly well-cooked filet mignon. That Cape buffalo is the largest I've ever seen. Oh, that fellow, he was a monster. Did he charge you? Hurled me against a tree, said the general. Fractured my skull, but I got the brute. I've always thought, said Rainsford, that the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all big game. For a moment, the general did not reply. He was smiling his curious red-lipped smile. Then he said slowly, No, you are wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous big game. He sipped his wine. Here in my preserve on the island, he said in the same slow tone, I hunt more dangerous game. Rainsford expressed his surprise. Is there big game on this island? The general nodded. The biggest. Really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have to stock the island. What have you imported, general? Rainsford asked. Tigers? The general smiled. No, he said. Hunting tigers ceased to interest me some, some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities, you see. No thrill left in tigers. No real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. The general took from his pocket a gold cigarette case and offered his guest a long black cigarette with a silver tip. It was perfumed and gave off a smell like incense. We will have some capital hunting, you and I, said the general. I shall be most glad to have your society. 
But what game? Began Rainsford. I'll tell you, said the general. You will be amused. I know. I think I may say, in all modesty, that I have done a rare thing. I have invented a new sensation. May I pour you another glass of port? Thank you, General. The general filled both glasses and said, God makes some men poets. Some he makes kings, some beggars. Me, he made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger, my father said. He was a very rich man with a quarter of a million acres in the Crimea, and he was an ardent sportsman. When I was only five years old, he gave me a little gun, specially made in Moscow for me, to shoot sparrows with. When I shot some of his prized turkeys with it, he did not punish me. He complimented me on my marksmanship. I killed my first bear in the Caucasus when I was 10. My whole life has been one prolonged hunt. I went into the army. It was expected of a nobleman's son. And for a time, commanded a division of Cossack cavalry. But my real interest was always the hunt. I have hunted every kind of game in every land. It would be impossible for me to tell, tell you how many animals I have killed. The general puffed at his cigarette. After the debacle in Russia, I left the country, for it was imprudent for any officer of the Tsar to stay there. Many noble Russians lost everything. I, luckily, had invested heavily in American securities, so I shall never have to open a tea room in Monte Carlo or drive a taxi in Paris. Naturally, I continued to hunt grizzlies in Iraqis, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceroses in East Africa. It was in Africa that the Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me up for six months. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Amazon to hunt jaguars, for I had heard they were unusually cunning. They weren't. The Cossack sighed. They were no match at all for a hunter with his wits about him and a high-powered rifle. I was bitterly disappointed. I was lying in my tent with a splitting headache one night when a terrible thought pushed its way into my mind. Hunting was beginning to bore me. And hunting, remember, had been my life. I have heard that in America, businessmen often go to pieces when they give up the business that has been their life. Yes, that's so, said Rainsford. The general smiled. I had no wish to go to pieces, he said. I must do something. Now, mine is an analytical mind, Mr. Rainsford. Doubtless. That is why I enjoy the problems of the chase. No doubt, General Zaroff. So, continued the general, I asked myself why the hunt no longer fascinated me. You are much younger than I am, Mr. Ainsworth, and I have not hunted as much, but you perhaps can guess the answer. What it was it? Simply this. Hunting had ceased to be what you call a sporting proposition. It had become too easy. I always got my query. Always. There is no greater bore than perfection. The general lit a fresh cigarette. No animal had a chance with me anymore. That is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. The animal had nothing but his legs and his instinct. Instinct is no match for reason. When I thought of this, it was a tragic moment for me. I can tell you. Rainsford leaned across the table, absorbed in what his host was saying. It came to me as an inspiration what I must do. The general went on. And that was? The general smiled, the quiet smile of one who has faced an obstacle and surmounted it with success. I had to invent a new animal to hunt, he said. A new animal? You're joking. Not at all, said the general. I never joke about hunting. I needed a new animal. I found one. So I bought this island, built this house, and here I do my hunting. The island is perfect for my purposes. There are jungles with a maze of traits in them, hills, swamps. But the animal, General Zaroff. Oh, said the general. 
It supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant. Every day I hunt, and I never grow bored now, for I have a query with which I can match my wits. Rainsford's bewilderment showed in his face. I wanted the ideal animal to hunt, explained the general. So I said, what are the attributes of an ideal query? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. But no animal can reason, objected Rainsford. My dear fellow, said the general. There is one that can. But you can't mean, gasped Rainsford. Thank <laughs> you.